This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I am talking to John Hibbing and John Albert, who are, sorry, John Alford, who are two of the authors of the uh, very interesting new book, uh, Predisposed Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences. John and John, how are you both doing today? Maybe I can start with John. Uh, John Hibbing, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Heath. Thanks very much for having us. Wonderful. And, and John Alford, maybe I can start with you and give you the chance to introduce yourself just a little bit, uh, who you are, where, where you are now, and, and anything else you'd like to share. Hi, I'm John Alford. I'm at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And um, John Hibbing and I uh, met up in graduate school at University of Iowa and have been doing research on and off ever since. Great. And John Hibbing, how, how about yourself? Where, where are you now? I am at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm in the Department of Political Science with a courtesy appointment in psychology. I've been here about uh, a little over 30 years now. Okay, wonderful. And, and the other author who isn't with us is, is Kevin Smith, who is, is also with you at uh, Nebraska, John? Yes, he's right down the hall, but uh, he's recently become chair of the department, so he seems to think he's, he's too important for events like this. Well, he is forgiven, and, and uh, he, he, didn't, uh, he contributed mightily to the book, so, so uh, we, are, uh, we can appreciate that. Let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the writing of the book, um, John Alford. You you allude a little bit to how you guys got together, and some of it is the obvious connections at the at the institution. Um, but maybe you guys could talk just a little bit about the history of this collaboration. Um, you know, how long in the making is this book? Uh, you know, was there an uh, initial idea that you're you're pursuing, or is this this a, a long uh, and well established collaboration? And uh, John Hipping, would you like to maybe uh, start? Okay. Uh, it's difficult to know how far back to go. As, as John mentioned, he and I were graduate students together. So uh, we were looking at things like congressional elections for a long time and public opinion. Uh, and I think uh, 10, 15 years ago, we were each a little bit dissatisfied. We thought maybe some of the questions uh, were not being answered fully just because of traditions and the disciplines. So it turned out that each of us had been reading outside the discipline in, in areas such as evolutionary psychology and uh, genetics and uh, physiology. And um, we kind of sheepishly mentioned it. Uh, I don't know who said it first to the other, but uh, it turned out that we each had been going down the same path. Uh, so one thing led to another, and we thought this shouldn't be something we're doing on the side. We should address it a little bit more directly and, and uh, hopefully get the discipline to think more broadly about some of these issues. And Kevin, uh, it was kind of in a similar boat. Uh, he's a little younger than we are, so we didn't find out about his interest a little bit later. But since he was right down the hall from me, um, you know, conversation over a beer, one thing led to another, and we realized that the three of us had a lot of shared interests. 
Yeah, and, and the result is a really interesting book and nuanced and, and touches on so, so many things. Before we get to what your contribution is, uh, John Alfred, I wonder if you can um, uh, sort of uh, describe a little bit about what this is a response to, um, kind of the, the common um, cliched narrative that, that maybe we see on TV or we see repeated in, in, in other settings about about these these differences between liberals and conservatives. What's the so what's the common notion that you guys uh, try to push a little further and, and poke some holes at and, and contribute science to what's sometimes not a very scientific discussion? Well, I think they're, we're really reacting to two things. One is a, a sort of very broadly accepted and very old tradition in political science and the social sciences as well, that behavior, adult human behavior, is uh, almost entirely the result of uh, environmental effects, whether those are early childhood socialization effects, you know, your parents, the schools you go to, or later life experiences, the kind of job you end up at, the, the friends you make as an adult, your later life experiences. So we're trying to provide some balance to that. Um, our, our view is that environmental effects are important, but that they're not the universal explanation for all of social behavior and particularly for all of political behavior. At the same time, we're also reacting a bit to something you see maybe a little more recently and a little more in the popular media, which is a notion that uh, genes are almost directly responsible for just about everything about um, about adult individuals. And so we're trying to we're really looking at a kind of middle ground in which we take seriously the notion that there are um, both environmental and genetic effects, and in particular that that the real fruit for current exploration is in the area of trying to understand the biology of human political behavior uh, more than trying to explore its detailed genetic origins um, or, or fighting the nature-nurture battle. We just really we want to start with the assumption that there is some role for nature in this process, and then we want to try to get get to work on, on understanding that biology of political behavior. One of the ways that, that people uh, typically think about this is, is to focus on, on brain and brain research. Um, but your book shows that there are other physiological differences that, that, are, that are important, that matter. Um, what are these, and, and how do they relate to politics? John, John Hibbing, what, uh, what more than brain research did you guys look at to try to uh, contribute to this area? Well, you're certainly right. You need to conceptualize this not just as the brain, but as the entire nervous system. So we uh, look at things that range from, you know, uh, cognitive traits, like what kinds of things we pay attention to and how we process various new information to more physiological reactions and even endocrine levels. So what's your cortisol level? Uh, how does your cortisol respond to a stressful situation? What happens when you see an image that's maybe disgusting or threatening? Does your skin conductance go up? Does your sympathetic nervous system seem to kick in? Uh, we've done that, and we've also done some brain imaging work as well. So uh, you're right. We like to take a, a somewhat broader and, and Catholic approach to uh, thinking about these very basic changes that occur when we conceptualize politics and respond to all kinds of stimuli. Yeah, let's talk about at least one of the things that you do in the book. You do a lot of different things. Um, and, and you do rely on, on some of the methods that, that psychologists have, have often used. You, you refer to a, the flanker test. 
Um, I wonder if you would describe what the flanker test is, how you used it, and you know, sort of basically what you found from it. Well, I'll take that one. Um, the flanker task is when you show an image to a, a research subject, uh, and, and that's called the target image because it's in the center of the screen. And then you introduce some flanking images, one on each side. And sometimes those flanking images are the same, so the, the target image might be a smiling face. If it's a congruent flanker, then uh, both of the images on the sides are also smiling. But they can also be incongruent. And uh, what you're testing for is the extent to which being incongruent slows you down. And it's long been known that that does happen. One of the things that we found, and this is a good illustration of the differences between liberals and conservatives, is that conservatives tend to be so locked in on a face that is threatening or angry that it doesn't matter what the flanking images are. And that's a very unusual finding. Usually those flanking images make a difference. But to us, this illustrates the tendency of some people in the population, in this case those who have somewhat conservative political beliefs, to uh, focus very strongly on the negative aspects of the environment. And, and many of the findings uh, contribute to these, this idea that, th that there are these differences between uh, liberals and conservatives. When we look at this, how true is this of elected officials? Um, you know, many of these ex experiments are done uh, with, with just um, uh, individuals in the population. But, but how much of your argument extends also to those that are in positions of power? What's, what is there a connection? What is the connection to be made between these, you know, the, our uh, uh, elected elites and just the rest of us? Well, I think there's, uh, we definitely share uh, physiological predispositions. I do think elites are much more intellectually engaged in the details of politics and policy. And so I think you would expect in that setting that there is more um, maybe differentiation from their physiological predisposition than you would expect for an, an average member of the electorate where politics is a kind of peripheral concern. At, at the same time, I think um, people, even elites, recognize in themselves that kind of predisposition. You'll hear politicians say, you know, I'm conservative all the way to my DNA, um, and I think they may be right. And, and I also hear you hear people say about others, quite in vogue these days in the Tea Party, for example, to talk about someone and say, well, they're, you know, they're not really a conservative. And, and I think in part what they mean by that is that their conservatism of someone, John Cornyn in Texas, for example, is, um, Tea Party is um, challenging him. And there's an argument that maybe he's an intellectual conservative but isn't really a real conservative. And I think part of what people mean by that is that they don't get the sense that this person is sort of instinctively conservative as opposed to intellectually conservative. And I think that notion of a kind of deep instinctive gut conservatism or liberalism is really what we're getting at with the notion of predisposition. Yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that, your, your title, Predisposed, and this idea. Um, are these Tea Party um, advocates right when they make this assertion? Not about the specifics, whether John Cornyn himself is or is not, but about um, these, these predispositions. How, how deep does this go, um, and, and what does it mean to be predisposed towards being a liberal or being a conservative? Well, it probably won't surprise you to hear that I, I think you know, these things do run very deep. That's the whole idea of a predisposition. It doesn't mean that they're not changeable. We all know people who have done a kind of 180 with regard to their political beliefs, but I think it's interesting to note how rare that is. 
Uh, and I really, I like to think of these things as set points, which is a, a common phrase in psychology, that we tend to have a happiness set point. And this can bounce around depending on what happens to you over the course of a lifetime. But generally is the case that people who are kind of upbeat are usually that way throughout their lives. So uh, I see it the same way with regard to politics, that we have these predispositions that are physiologically instantiated that push us one direction or the other. And, and it can be bounced around. Maybe a searing event occurs, such as 9-11, can change political beliefs. But uh, failing that, and, and even sometimes in spite of that, I mean, a lot of the people who changed their beliefs after 9-11 are now coming back to where they were before. They're returning to their set point. So these things do run deep, but that doesn't mean they're, they're uh, completely unchangeable. I thought right at the beginning of the book, you, you described some of the reaction to your earlier publications around similar research and, and some of the emails and, and correspondences you had with people who um, uh, were almost disappointed by this, uh, that they, they kind of like the, 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 the feeling they have that their opponents uh, simply are, are wrong or bad people. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the response you know, your, your audience has, students have had, to these notions, uh, uh, is it uh, what do people make of your your argument? Well, I know at least uh, a few students I've had who were uncomfortable with their own ideology um, found this interesting. Uh, uh, you know, if you're out of sync with the ideology of your, your family, for example, uh, and again, we traditionally believe that family socialization is such an important part of where ideology comes from that if you have liberal parents and ended up being conservative or conservative parents and end up being liberal, that there's, that's a source of considerable tension. The parents are wondering where they went wrong and, uh, and the offspring are, you know, feeling some guilt about, you know, sort of where they are, sometimes even reluctant to even tell their parents exactly what their, what their ideological inclination is. And, uh, and I had one student who likened it basically to coming out that he was, you know, he, he finally admitted to his parents that he was a liberal. Um, and that was a difficult thing to do. I had another student, a gay student, who was also very conservative, and um, he had an issue with most of his friends recognized that that he was, um, you know, born gay. They didn't think he was making a choice to be gay, uh, but they had much more difficult, much more difficulty absorbing the notion that he would, as I said, choose to be conservative when he knew that that in current politics, conservative interests and gay interests weren't always aligned and. And so he found it interesting to be able to respond to them that he was, you know, he didn't choose to be gay, but he also didn't choose to be conservative. And so maybe they should show the same respect for his, his predispositions in politics that they showed for his sexual preference. The three of us have sometimes joked that we're still looking for a constituency because uh, what we mean by that is liberals tend to be bothered by these ideas because they'd like to believe that everything is about the human condition is completely malleable. And conservatives tend to think that we're just a bunch of liberal academics who are out to show that conservatives are somehow, you know, genetically or biologically flawed. And I think ideology aside, you just get most people who want to believe that their political beliefs are really purely rational and very sensible responses to the world around them. So I think the notion that maybe part of our beliefs are not quite that uh, rational and conscious is a little bit, a little bit off-putting. Uh, the, the three of us have spouses who are very strongly political, and I, uh, each of them has expressed some reservations about um, just the way we are maybe a little bit more dispassionate because we, you know, we're willing to look at the people who disagree with us politically and say, well, you know what, They're, they have different predispositions. And, and uh, Heath, you were right that that does kind of take away some of the fun of it. Early on, we, yeah. we had a, 
a lady email us and she said, don't do this to me. I need to hate conservatives. So that, that's something right. that's always stuck in our minds. Right, right. And John, you right, you're, uh, authored this, this very interesting blog sort of related to this. And this really does get down to um, what we make of uh, these findings. You, you write uh, towards the end of the book I, in your conclusion, I think, and, and I quote, we recommend not wasting your breath on those who are predisposed to political positions that run opposite of yours. You then note that this is a depressing advice. So what's the silver lining? Um, what do we make of the advice you're giving not to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince people who aren't going to be convinced? Um, what's, uh, what do we make of that? And, and what's the silver lining that you offer towards the end of the book? Well, I think at least part of that is... is there is a utility in recognizing that the the solution to, for example, our current problems of polarization or a lack of civility are are not going to be solved by things magically going away, that some notion of a melting pot or a, that we'll all meet in the middle somewhere, that, you know, the, the recognition that people are predisposed in quite differently and therefore view the political world very differently um, it's an important recognition that that's not going to change and that that's not the goal of political discourse to basically find either a way to meet in the middle or to change everyone's mind. Um, you, can, you can continue to have, I think, much more useful discussions about uh, how you can reach some kind of agreements with regard to policies uh, if you just skip the step of assuming that policy agreement will come by first homogenizing our, our, our basic um, uh, political beliefs. Yeah, the, the book overall is just, it's just really interesting. I, I think it's interesting as a political scientist. I can imagine people teaching this in, in, uh, in, in classes to try to give this, this perspective. Um, what's, what's up next from you guys? John, John Hibbing, what's, what's your next project? Is there, will it be the result of this collaboration, or are you working on something a little different for us? Oh, a couple of things. I guess one that may be of interest is that we're shifting gears a little bit from trying to figure out why some people are liberal and some are conservative to why some are really into politics, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum. And some, uh, on the other hand, are just completely uh, apathetic and they, they don't understand what all the fuss is about. So uh, I think this is important because sometimes people read our research and think we're just saying there are only two types of people. And we recognize there are lots of people in the middle and lots of nuances to these things. And, but uh, one of the other groups of people besides strong ideologues are those that just don't, don't really get the excitement about politics. So we'd like to understand the, the biological constitution of those individuals as well. And John Alford, how about yourself? Is, is there a, a new book project on the horizon for you? Um. There is something on the horizon, but we're we're not allowed to speak about it. It's um, it makes the controversy surrounding this book um, will seem like um, play a preschool compared to compared to the follow up book. But in terms of the of the research, uh, another area that I think is um, something that we look forward to having a better understanding of um, in the next few years, we found uh, sort of pieces of. Uh, or parts of ideology to be explained by parts of physiology. So we talk about threat and um, things like national defense conservatism or disgust and things like um, uh, conservatism or liberalism on issues like gay marriage. Uh, but clearly there is there is something that's binding these things together because we know there's a general left-right 
continuum. And, and I think that's something we really don't have much of a handle on is how these um, sort of seemingly independent physiological systems for different areas of ideology tend to get um, correlated into what we think of as the kind of broad left-right continuum. Well, John, that, that may be the best teaser for an uh, upcoming book, as, as I've ever heard. Thankfully, we have your current book, Until That Comes Our Way, Predisposed Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of Political Differences, uh, published this year by, by Routledge. Uh, John, uh, both Johns and, and Kevin Smith are, are the authors. Thank you both for your time. Thank you very much for the book as well. Thank you, Heath. Very much our pleasure.